Don't you wish life were like the game Candyland? Candy being handed out at every corner. But we all know that life gives you lemons, not candy. We have a choice in every moment though of what we're gonna do with those lemons. One of those options is the cliche we hear all the time, to make lemonade. A few years back, a colleague was introducing me to some global leaders at the Milken Institute Global Conference. And before I could even open my mouth to answer the question of what I do, she said, Kaylee is the queen of making lemonade out of lemons. I had the chills. In one breath, she nailed my essence. Being queen lemonade doesn't just mean that I make lemonade out of lemons, but one of my life's missions has been to help others see the lemonade in their lives. So I wanted to create Lemonade Land as a place where we make lemonade together, where we come together to witness each other's challenges and share our triumphs. In Lemonade Land, we'll celebrate the lemonade that everyday people are creating out of life's toughest moments. As Queen Lemonade, I'm merely here to inspire. Each one of us can make lemonade, and in doing so, we become co-creators of our experience and ourselves. It's what makes life beautiful. I'm Kaylee Zaytuni. Welcome to Lemonade Land. I am thrilled to thank today's sponsor because he's a dear friend and has been a huge part of making this podcast possible. David Kopp is an incredible brand strategist and graphic designer, amongst many other things. You know that phrase, jack of all trades, master of none? Well, <laughs> he masters them all. He's been a dear friend for so many years. Oh my gosh, I can't even remember. It's been well over a decade. And I'm so, so blessed to have him in my life. But I want to share with you today what makes him so unique and why I highly recommend reaching out to him for any branding or design needs. When it comes to brand and design, you know, I've worked with so many designers and I used to work in the nonprofit world and in the corporate world. And for whatever reason, it didn't matter what my title was. I was somehow always involved with a lot of branding and design and sometimes overseeing an entire rebrand. And David is always my first stop when that task is at hand. And what I find so incredible is that especially when I'm working in a corporation, you know, of course, we have to get three pitches and compare. I'm always so amazed by how well David captures the essence of your brand and of you. I've certainly experienced that with myself. When he created my logo, I just remember this like feeling of breathing into it. Like, yes, that's so like, that's me. Like, you know, he just he really, really nails that. You know, he's just so good at nailing your essence essence and really getting in there and helping you choose a brand that does actually reflect everything that you want it to and what your ultimate vision is. So he is, oh my goodness, such a unique designer and comes at it also with a really unique understanding of psychology. He's also really good at understanding how something is going to land for your audience. So I highly recommend him. I also want to say he's very reasonably priced and he works for both large corporations, but definitely prefers to be working with startups and and he offers payment plans, which is really important these days. And if you mention my name, he will give you 10% off, which is awesome. That's me just giving you a little sweet lemonade for the day. He's super easy to find. All you got to do is Google him. Type in DK Benjamin. Again, that's the letter D for David, the letter K, and then the name Benjamin. And he'll pop right up at the top. So DK Benjamin, go ahead and search for him. And don't forget to mention my name for that sweet 10% off. That's my little lemonade gift to you today. And thanking David so much for making this podcast possible. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation today with Remy Blumenfeld, who coaches leaders to play the game of life with purpose, grace, and ease. In his 30s, Remy was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, which you'll hear about on the podcast, from which he recovered. And this experience brought him an awareness that the human lifespan of 83 years is only 1,000 months. It also prompted him to follow his calling as a coach and mentor. He specializes in sectors fueled by innovation and creativity, including arts and culture, media, television, film, fashion, and advertising. And his clients include directors of national arts organizations, worldwide ad agencies, and a wide range of entrepreneurs. His specialty is helping founders to build, grow, and sell in an uncertain and crowded market. Before becoming a coach, Remy launched his first TV production company out of his bedroom and sold it eight years later to the world's largest production company. 
Over the years, Remy has become a leader in the field of television, including working with the London Business School on their program for entrepreneurs, creating, producing, and selling dozens of the world's most groundbreaking, successful reality TV shows. And Remy has twice been ranked one of the top 20 most influential gay people in the UK by The Independent on Sunday. Remy's been featured in the New York Times, the Sunday Times, the Financial Times, the Hollywood Reporter, and Forbes, for whom he now writes a bi-weekly column on leadership. You can imagine how honored I am to be speaking with him today. We've been wanting to have this conversation for a while, and up until now, we've been professional colleagues, and I'm so excited that we finally <laughs> got the time to just sit down and talk on a more personal level I'm so excited that all of you listening are going to get inspired by him today. Remy, it's so great to have you today. It is such an honor to, to, to get to have this conversation with you. And thank you so much for taking the time. I have heard bits and pieces about you. I've read a little bit about you, but I'm excited to get to know you one-on-one -on -one now. Same here. We've never got to actually talk to each other about each other. We've always been talking about topics such yeah. as nocebo or how to cope with coronavirus. Um, so this, is, this feels like a luxury. And I feel like we also, we're both the kind of people who can appreciate that luxury. I, like, I guess for me, I feel like I've worked hard to set my life up in a way where I can have the conversations I want to have. Um, and I, I have a feeling you're similar. Well, yes, I think it's like you, I work as a coach. And what I'm sometimes reminded of is how exhausting that choice that we have over our own destiny can be. And I say that because I agree with you. It feels totally like a luxury, which I've created for myself and my life. And yet when I talk to clients or go through it with clients for the very first time, often that sense of I'm in charge of my life, no one else is responsible for my happiness or unhappiness can be quite a burden and quite exhausting for people, especially in the beginning. Yeah. So it's a privilege and also a responsibility. Yeah, it is. It's, I love how you phrase that. It's absolutely a responsibility. So is that something that, I mean, as the vitality guru, is this something that you coach people through that you advise them through that first phase of, it's overwhelming. <laughs> well, yeah, so I think very often um, as human beings, we take for granted experiences we've had because we've absorbed them and it seems normal. Oh. So quite often with clients, I don't realize quite how much they're dealing with or what they're going through or what they're taking on. I need to yeah. check in with them and remind myself of it because for me, having had a life-threatening illness in my 20s, a lot of things just seem very normal and easy, which to people who haven't had that confrontation um, ever, feel very, very, very challenging. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's so, you know, everything's relative. And it sounds like from what you're saying, after facing a life-threatening illness, after facing death, it, everything else can feel a lot simpler, a lot more manageable. But if someone else hasn't faced that, you know, their day-to-day -day life is very stressful. And you're right, as a coach, it's so important that we take that into consideration, like the whole picture. Can we go back to that, that you just kind of dropped in there? Yes, <laughs> well, it's useful to... Life-threatening illness in your 20s. Yeah, so it was so bad, Kaylee, that... One night I was in hospital. I'd been in hospital many nights in a row, but one night in this National Health System hospital in London, St. Thomas's, uh, my doctor said, you know, if you want, you can let your dog sleep in the ward with you overnight. And wow. I love my dog. I mean, it was a different dog than the dog I have now. It was an Irish terrier called mm. Sam, but I love Sam. And so, I was delighted to have my dog sleep over. But what I didn't realize then was that was his signal to me and my partner that this was going to be my last night because 
it may not surprise you to know that doc, dogs are not allowed in NHS hospitals. And I would so, so. <laughs> right. Um, so I was delighted to have my dog sleep over. Um, and as you can tell, uh, it You're was not here. my last night. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. At that time, I mean, obviously that was a, a dramatic night yeah. with hindsight. But through that whole period, I got to confront my own mortality because although I certainly didn't know that tomorrow was going to be my last day, I definitely knew that I, I had months or weeks, mm. which, um, as you know, as someone who has also defied medical experience, um, yeah, I, I had to confront my death and then I got to, to live another day. And I think if I could give that gift to everyone on the planet, I, I would package it and give it so willingly because no matter how difficult and challenging and traumatic and horrible and gut-wrenching and sad, the knowledge is that we may not live till the end of the year, let alone the end of the decade. Yeah. Living through that experience, coming out the other end, brings a whole new level of appreciation to life. Life becomes sweeter, lighter, more joyous. I became so much more, I was always a, I was always a sentient, person. I always savored things. I always appreciated things, but I didn't know how much I wasn't savoring things until I had this experience. In other words, afterwards, I have savored things so much more and enjoyed life so much more and appreciated life so much more. And also really, as you say, come to understand what is truly important, which again, on an intellectual level, I knew before. It wasn't as though I was uh, someone who was kind of driven to materialism and chasing for idols before I had my terminal diagnosis. It's simply that afterwards I became emotionally present to that reality. I became emotionally present to the thing that I'd understood intellectually before. And I became completely aware that the only thing that matters in life is not my achievements, not any money I might make, not, um, not anything that I've done or anything that I've acquired. The only thing that matters to me in life is who I love and who loves me. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Well, we all know that on some level, right? You don't have to have a life-threatening illness to right. discover it. And yet to feel it as a truth, yeah. somehow I needed that experience. I yeah. knew it was true intellectually, but I hadn't really felt it in my body in that way. And, and that is a very liberating thing to feel. Yeah. Wow. There's like so much I want to respond to right now. The, the fact that that wasn't your last day in the hospital, what do you attribute that to? If doctors were saying, this is it, this is your last day. Well, I think the power of self-belief is, is huge. And I think if I had believed it was my last day, it could well have been. Hmm. But I although I knew intellectually that I had a life-threatening illness that might end my life before the end of the year, I, I didn't feel it. I mm. felt I'm still alive. I am connected to the people in my life who I love and I, I'm here. Yeah. So, um, so I didn't feel it. So I, I have to say that I attributed to that. And before I got to talk to you about the subject, I did some of my own research around the difference in patient groups who believe they're going to survive and the patient groups who believe they're not. Oh, you're speaking the language. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a sort of cornerstone quote in life coaching generally, which I'm sure you and many of your listeners know, which is from Henry Ford, who says, whether you believe you can do it or you believe you can't do it, you're right. right. <laughs> And I think the same applies fundamentally to life itself. If you believe you're going to live or you believe you're going to die, you have a greater chance of being right. Now, that's not to say that you can overcome all the odds, but it certainly helps. And um, what happened was I got to live long enough for new discoveries to be made, new medicine to be available, new yeah. things to come on the horizon, which prolonged my life and ultimately uh, enable doctors to treat my condition. Wow. And I should just 
say here that what happened next was really beyond any expectation because three years later, having left that hospital bed, returned to my life um, as a healthy 27-year-old man, I then had kidney failure and suddenly found myself back in a situation that I was in before. And, and, I, and because of my previous condition in the United Kingdom, I wasn't able to have a kidney transplant. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, doctor said, because they prioritize people based on their ability to, or their perceived With ability to, to, to survive. And because kidneys are in short supply and the operation is challenging, they didn't, they didn't give me a new kidney. And ultimately, I went to the United States where my brother was the donor and he gave me his kidney. Oh so, my God. Yeah. 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 Really? Uh, what? I know. I shouldn't be here, honestly. What Katie. having I you should... survived? What? Oh what? What did you say? I said, "What haven't you survived?" Well, um, we're all surviving life, aren't we? And I, I happen to survive two illnesses, both of which were potentially um, terminal. Yeah, and that's really serious. My goodness. Yeah, but that was twenty years ago. You know, so. Oh my gosh, amazing. And you're the picture of health today, which is incredible. And I love how you said that, self-belief. It's, it's so, so true. And I, it's, it's, I think that anyone can apply that in any aspect, right? They don't need to be on their deathbed to learn the significance of that. It's, it applies to every part of our lives, right? So whether it's in career, whether it's in a relationship, I, I, I think for me, when I look back on my life, you know, for 18 years, I lived with MS. I was diagnosed when I was 12. And, but I, and I, the first few years were really rough, really, really rough. And, and I went through some really tough times, but I always, always believed I was going to figure it out, that I would get through it. So even before I went through my healing journey, that was my focus. And I really believe that's what kept bringing me back to a baseline and just allowed me to continue to somehow navigate that. And I see that everywhere in my life. And I'm sure you also see that, especially with your clients, that where someone's mindset is, has everything to do with the outcome. Yes, completely. And I think it has a lot to do also with challenging agreements, um, you know, because there were agreements mm -hmm. around your condition, which you had to challenge. And there were agreements around mine, which I had to. And, and that's a very strengthening experience. I mean, I, I wouldn't wish that part necessarily on anybody. I, I definitely would wish the surviving death and living to uh, have a wonderful life. I yeah. would wish that on everyone. But the part that I think is especially challenging is when everyone else, doctors, family members, friends, society believes one thing and you have to continue believing another. It really is tough and you know, it's especially, well, at the, at the time, uh, of my first illness, my, my mother definitely believed I was going to live through it. And my father definitely didn't. Wow. Um, oh my goodness. I think you know, he's just much more pragmatic and science-based and just thought that it was foolish to foster these false hopes. And so every time I saw him, I was confronted by his view, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, was difficult for our relationship and was difficult for, for me, but you know, he wasn't alone or, cousins who were doctors, um, other people in the family who were scientists and doctors around me were all saying, you know, you have a month or you have a week or you may not live through the night. Yeah, I, and I, I just, you know, you're saying this so casually. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you just, the way this, I just need to acknowledge that. That's all. I just want to acknowledge you're saying it so casually. A week, a month, you may not live through the night. And then like, just go back to your normal sentence. Like, that's normal. Okay. Well, it is in the past. And I think, you know, one thing that's interesting about vulnerability is that one can only really share it when one has strength. You know, it's so we share our vulnerability, but I've moved through that now. And I it definitely couldn't talk about it that way at the time, yeah. but 20, 30 years later, it, it feels like a story that happened almost to somebody else. But I'm just conscious of, you know, your journey as a young person being told you would never stand up on stage to graduate you might not even graduate at all and 
that belief that your life was so constrained by your condition and the, and the strength that it takes to, to challenge those agreements, I guess is what I'm saying. It always strikes me now, you know, because obviously I have a different practice than, than yours. I don't specialize in helping people with uh, either with grief, although I have trained as a grief counselor, or with coping with life-threatening illnesses, although I've had life-threatening illnesses. But what strikes me so often when someone is coming out as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, or transgender, or, or when somebody has cancer themselves, at those moments when in our life we are at our most fragile, our most vulnerable, at those moments when we desperately need other people's unconditional, undying support and help, yes. what we're so often faced with is having to help them through our pain and grief oh. and upset. We're really helping them. Yes. Yeah. That is yes. so, so true. It's such a common experience. It's, I literally will give my clients, my, my grief clients, I give them a little pamphlet to give to their loved ones with all the do's and don'ts because it's not their job to support their family through their own pain. But this is such, it's mind blowing to me that you're saying this, that is so, so, so common that as people are going through their most raw, most vulnerable, toughest moments, they have to coach others, but it's mm. their, it's their challenge. It's, that's just, it's, why is that? What is that about? I, I know it's, it's as though the maker designed it that way because there is not a challenging situation that exists in which this isn't true for someone, whether it's a child coming out to their parents as transgender or whether it's a person suffering with cancer in every instance, at those moments, we have to, in order to get through it for ourselves, we have to help the people around us. Yeah. And I wish everyone could have your pamphlet with the instructions. And I wish we were taught those things. You know, I, I really feel uh, like, with all the work that I've done, that it's almost criminal that kids at school aren't taught these important distinctions around being human, that so much yes. time is wasted with stuff that will never really apply to their lives or be useful, where really fundamental building bricks around being human are not discussed or broached or talked about. You know, there's an interesting community mm. series going out in the UK at the moment about race, and it's about this school of a class of nine-year-olds, which is quite a mixed class of black, white, Asian, and Chinese students, and they never have discussed race until this program. Race is never discussed. I'm, mm. I'm just making the point that dealing with difference, coping with adversity, um, supporting each other through these times, you know, would, you would think might be a useful part of our education, but it's just skipped over completely. Yeah, just maybe. Yeah, I, I love how you say, it. like, it's educating people on being human. And this is what is just so profound to me. The things that I've learned through my journey and just, you know, just one small piece of that is these agreements that we make. I think back, I'm like, if someone had told me this when I was younger, this would have saved me decades of suffering. And yeah. it's, and that is so much more, and I, I, I'm not putting down math, I love math, but that would have served me so much more than algebra. Like, so much more to just know, how, how, and I wish other people had had that, especially when I was grieving. I was like, how come no one was ever taught how to just sit and be quiet? <laughs> like, please don't compare this to your own loss right now. Like, mm. I'm suffering. Or, you know, how to just sit and hold space. To you, and, and I would love to hear, you know, your experience with some of your clients, if this applies. But to be able to just sit and hold space for another human being is so transformative it's beautiful it's emotional it's deep you confront yourself in new ways like it's it's one of i think that piece alone is life-changing and it can be taught from a very very young age and i have i work on that with my clients all the time and with their loved ones all the time and i imagine as the vitality guru that that's probably part of your work as well yes it, it is for sure i mean my my client base is mostly creative leaders, founders of businesses in the creative sector and, and entrepreneurs and leaders across 
the arts and entertainment sector. And of course, you know, they are human. So yes, how to take people with you, have them support you through challenging transitions. Yeah. It's, uh, it's essential. And, and there's probably no better preparation for that either than the one that you and I had around having to face our own mortality at quite a young age and help people through that. I think for me, probably, if I'm honest, I had that experience much younger because I came out as gay to my parents um, long before I was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so I had to help them through that. And I think anybody who's had a, a big transition of any kind has had to do that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting what you said before, like that's just maybe how the maker created us. And what I take from that is what we're going to say to to our loved ones and how we're going to explain this to them, how we're going to get through it, how they're going to get through it in a way it, it allows us to face it in a different way. You know, as much as I hate having to console others when I'm suffering, (laughs) hate it. Okay. At the same time, it's probably a big part of what has made me so resilient because I had to process those things. Like, I'm going through this. I don't have a choice. They're watching. How, how can I guide them? And in just processing that probably allows the person, the sufferer, the person at the, at the heart of it um, to face it in, in a more resilient way. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking this out loud right now, but yeah. Yeah, without, without question. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it cannot, we can't help feeling that we are strong, we are capable, we are resilient if we are supporting our friends and family and people that are older than us. Our through, parents. Yeah, our parents through a, through a situation. Um, yeah. So it gives, I think as you suggest, it, it helps build self-belief, although it shouldn't be the case that we have to, it does, it has a benefit. It has a benefit. Um, Although even saying this, I'm really conscious of the fact that, and I'm, I'm here doing this podcast with you and I'm sure there are other people who came out as gay and didn't survive as well or had a terminal illness that they had to support their friends and family through the, it didn't work out as well. And, um, yeah, we're definitely the lucky ones. Yeah. Yeah. We're the lucky ones. There's no two ways about it. And, you know, it's something that I, I think about a lot. I, I, I frequently kind of reflect on, you know, what factors play into the, the, the different outcomes. Um, and I was even listening to a talk by Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza today. And he was saying, you know, it was sort of, there was a question about like nature versus nurture. And, and he was saying, even what our parents are experiencing prior to conception impacts our DNA and therefore so much about our lives and how we respond. If we respond first with fear, if we respond with resilience and, and so there's just so many factors at play and it's so I think it's so important to take that step back, like you just, you know, pointed out. Like we're the lucky ones. It, we're really, really yeah. lucky to be able to. Well, totally, and and it's interesting what you were just saying because, of course, um, I'm called Remy Blumenfeld. You are in Israel, so we come from Jewish families. I'm guessing, yes. and yes. you know, in Jewish <laughs> families, there's a lot of trauma that is passed on in the way that you described because of the trauma of our ancestors quite recently, and. And that is passed on in the DNA. There was a fascinating study of mothers who were conceived at the time of 9-11. And what they discovered is the much higher level of cortisol in those babies. So the babies were born with much higher fight or flight instinct, much higher levels of cortisol because their mothers had it in their system at that time. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And that's going to change the course of that child's life. Of course. And their child will also inherit that higher level of cortisol because genetically uh, it's a sign, you know, that you'll need it. If you have it, you need it. So if your mother has it, you need it. You need it. Just like, it's just like if we need five fingers, eventually we're not going to have them because we're going to be passing that on. So it's the same thing. You need the cortisol. It's a scary world out there. Yeah, no, completely. So um, yeah, 
that that um, energy that often exists uh, at Jewish dinner tables is something that is passed on in our DNA. It's absolutely passed on. And, and something that I really firmly believe in is we have to do our work to do the healing. That that's on us for the next generation. And so, so that, that that can be healed. And in so many ways, right? On so many levels. So, you know, it, it's interesting that you were, you were very open about sort of your experience coming out to your parents and especially your father's reaction to a, you know, a life-threatening illness. And, you know, what's interesting is that you, you've clearly done your work around it. I can hear that, right? You've clearly done your work around it. But when we do, we, I believe we create healing for them as well. So it goes both directions to the generations to come and before us that when we, when we do our work and it's something that I, I try to be conscious of um, in my own life. And yeah, you know, I, I wonder if you also see that, but I think we definitely see it in the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> we say yeah. that lovingly to all of our brothers and sisters. Yeah. But you know, when I recently made a documentary for the BBC about my grandfather's life and mm -hmm. in the course of that, I interviewed my parents and, and other relatives. And I was so present to that extraordinary, uh, the horror of that time in the beginning of the 20th century. You know, my grandfather fought through in the First World War. He fought on the German side. Then he was oh in camps uh, in the Second World War. And, you know, the, the level to which they had to suffer, they were ostracized. Um, you know, it's really kind of shocking. And, of course, that impacts our biology that impacts our makeup that impacts so whether neuroses and stress are learned or whether they're inherited almost doesn't matter if they're passed on from generation to generation and I had always assumed that those things were passed on through behavior but like you I was really interested to see that they're also passed on genetically yeah and mind. it's and it's not an excuse. It's just an understanding. We understand that this is how it happens. And then we take responsibility for how we want to live our lives differently. Right. Just like you said in the beginning, you know, I, I want, it, it is overwhelming to, to live, <laughs> to, to know that my happiness is totally my responsibility, 100%. But that's, it's also a wonderful responsibility. And just like this healing is as well. That's, that's what I believe. But I sense that you came from a, a loving family i mean perhaps all yeah. families think they're loving but how would you describe your childhood and um your parenting that you received yeah um very loving family very loving family um i would say that i was unique i kind of came into the world <laughs> just managing on my own um <laughs> and my parents openly talk about how weird it was they were like you didn't really need parenting we didn't really have to tell you anything it was weird if we had to discipline you like so that was sort of me so my relationship with them was very different um and a lot of a, a lot of as you said like there are agreements that we make and a lot of my work has been acknowledging that you know even if i didn't need to be disciplined i still just i still just want that comfort of mom and dad sometimes you know so I'm so glad to have been able to, as an adult, kind of have these awarenesses so that I can go and, and get that in the, in the relationship in the way that I need it from them now. Um, but they're, I mean, they're so loving. So I don't want to diminish that. I don't want it to sound like they're not loving. They're incredible. But they were like, oh, she's got this. Like, she's got life figured out. She can handle this, right? Um, so they didn't, you know, go out of their way as much for me. Um, which was fine and, and incredible as a young child. And then actually once I was diagnosed, our, as you can imagine, our whole family dynamic changed. And you know, I, I'm sure you can relate to this, right? The whole family is, is facing illness. It's the whole family has a diagnosis. They're all going through it in their own ways, just as you described with your parents. And the same with mine. My brother also was going through his own, it was his own process through my diagnosis. And and even though I really took care of myself in terms of my health, to the extent that I could, I mean, I was, I was very limited, I was disabled. And so it was on them to, 
do the physical heavy lifting, but I was on top of my doctor appointments and my medications and like managing all of that. I then became a very vocal um, sort of representative of people with MS and was out there and was, was raising money and was doing interviews all the time and raising awareness. And I have to give my parents so much credit for how they showed up for me in that because it, I look back, I'm like, that's exhausting. It was a full-time job to just support me in, in my personal passion to make an impact in, in the MS community. And they didn't have to. It was enough to, to raise two kids. It's enough to raise two kids and one who has a chronic illness. Like, that's plenty. And then add to it, like, running a national nonprofit organization and just chasing me all over the country. <laughs> and they did it. Um, so I'm super grateful. But it's... This is something that I think, you know, we all learn when we go through through experiences like this is you just like you were describing, like we have to harness all of our strength. And as we do, we expand and our soul expands. And so our vessel expands, which means that it's no longer other people supporting you. You naturally become that pillar for others. And that's certainly within my family as well. Yeah, and it comes easily and naturally to you and me because yeah. we've been doing that ex exercise since we were very young. So yeah. it's just an easy, easier thing to do. It just comes more naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like I'm as you're talking, I'm like imagining like little Remy, you know. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, and 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 like I have a lot of compassion for for that child, for that little boy. And I know for myself, I think that being diagnosed so young really impacted the trajectory of my disease and of the, the woman that I've become. Because I think as kids, we're, we are more naturally resilient. So of course that's not everybody. And I, and I wanna be so mindful of those who are listening to this who are saying, hey, that's not how I took this at all. That was really rough for me as a kid, you know? But I still think we have more of a chance because we have less to lose. Right? I didn't have a spouse on the line. I didn't have a career on the line. I didn't, I didn't have enough time in life to get used to life a certain way. So I think that's the other thing. And, and I wonder how you feel about that, that like, you know, that th these experiences were happening to you as a child. I mean, I don't know how old you were when you came out to your parents, but that's, that's a life-changing experience. I think so. I think, I think any child who grows up feeling different or experiencing that difference through an illness um, has to confront things which, as you say, we mostly only think of having to confront as adults. And because we know no different as children, it seems normal. But then later as adults, it also normalizes a lot of things which for other people might be more stressful or, or more traumatic. And I do feel that having a loving childhood a loving basis is a really important starting point and i often feel particularly with clients who haven't had that uh, it, no matter what other experiences they may have had that could occur as better than my experiences if they didn't have that early first five years of support unconditional love listening being seen and heard by their parents that often is much more destabilizing and challenging for them in later life than um, than the things we might have suffered post uh, age five. Because I think the first five years are just so key to a child's development and to a person's development. One hundred percent, and I think it's it's so crucial. And yet, so many parents today don't have the tools. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about how are we educating children? What are they being taught in school? And I was thinking to myself, it's so interesting that they even have to think to have a class on adversity. Like, no two people are the same. If anything, adversity is the norm. It's just that we don't talk about it, right? I mean, everyone I talk to is going through something. And I always say this when I'm standing in front of an audience. I say, it's not that I'm special. All of you are going through something. The difference is that I'm here and comfortable talking about it. That's it. But every single person is going through something. So to me, it's also shocking that just like we don't have this kind of education in schools of how are you going to face adversity when it hits? How come parents aren't getting that education of like, not just 
how do you help your kids with their homework? And, and of course there, there are amazing parenting courses out there, but to me, it's like, how do you help them navigate what it means to face challenges, to be different, to have a soul in a body? Like, I just want every parent to be able to do that. <laughs> I know that's a lot. To yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there's a book, I'm sure you know it well, um, by Bronnie Ware, who was a, um, palliative care nurse in Australia and it's called the five regrets of the dying yeah. and because she held the hands of so many people at the end of their life she's aware of the fact that when we face the end whether it's in middle age or late age when we face the end we all have common regrets around how we wished as human beings we had spent our time and energy and and I feel like that is that should be course work for every child every yeah. child that book because if you work backwards from that end you can plan a so much more fulfilling and rewarding life if you know that as a human being unless i plan things well i will die wishing i had spent more time with the people i loved yeah. i will die regretting that i'd spent so much time on things that didn't matter to me i will die regretting having tried to please others i will wish i'd had more fun and not taking things so seriously. So that's a given. If we know that's coming, we have plenty of time to have fun, connect with people, do yeah. what really brings us joy now. And if we don't know that's coming, what we are going to find it out age 70 on our deathbed. It just feels too horrific. And, and to your earlier point, you know, in my twenties, when I was so ill, I found it really confronting that people were looking at me and talking to me as though I was the person who was going to die and they were going to live forever. You know, <laughs> the reality is, if we, if we live till 83, that's a thousand months. You know, oh. 83 years on this planet is a thousand months. And at that time, at that time I, I was predicted to have, a, you know, four or five months. Oh but God. they only had four or 500 or 300 or 200. So not a huge difference, really. No, no. And yet, and many of those doctors and clinicians and other people who looked at me with those uh, sad eyes as though I was the only one in the room who was ever going to die have since died themselves. So their 100, oh 200 God. months are, have been up. And I just think it's very important for us all to recognize we have a thousand months if we're lucky. Yeah. Oh, Remy, I, I love, I love everything you're saying. And, you know, one of, one of the things that, that I always, always, always say is that, you know, death is the one thing we are all going to experience. Loss is certainly something we are all going to experience. And yet it's the one thing none of us are prepared for. And somehow we all think we're avoiding. And the, the scene that you just described of the way people were looking at you, what I found when I was grieving was that there's like this fascination with death. There's a fascination with mortality and they're looking to you to be reassured. Oh, so this is, this is Remy's time, but I'm okay because I'm healthy. And they, they sort of need that comparison and, it, and somehow it's, it gives them some sort of consolation that they don't have to actually face their own mortality. When in reality, it's such a missed opportunity to say, well, this is real, you know? And, and instead, you know, everyone who's all of our loved ones to turn around and, and say, yeah, okay, I've got a thousand months. Let me just, let me just go hit the ground running. Right. So I'm interested in what you said about how, when you were grieving yourself, that again was another time when you had to take care of everyone else. So I hadn't really been conscious of that in life's trajectory. You know, I, I know that when you're ill, when you are transitioning, I know at those moments, as we've discussed, you have to hold other people's hands. But what you're saying is that when, when we grieve the loss of somebody, we also have to hold the hands of other people and take care of them and support them. I hadn't really processed that. You know, I will say that I learned a lot while I was grieving. And um, I, before I went through my grief experience, I, um, I was definitely a people pleaser. And, and I already had so much compassion and empathy after a lifetime of illness that it was natural for me to, you know, want to find the right thing to say to others. And it's, it's also just naturally me. I do see the bigger picture. 
And it did all make sense to me. I don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but my fiance passed almost four years ago now. And so within, within minutes of getting the news, I did see the bigger picture. I did see the meaning in it. I did see the perfection in it. It didn't make it any less painful, but I did see all of that. And so I was able to actually, you know, share comforting words with others. But I think the gift that I gave to myself during that process was to, to not do that, to hold back. And to realize that even if someone is saying something stupid right now and I could offer something and I could guide them in this moment, I have to just do what's good for me. And that was transformative to just take that step back and to acknowledge not everyone's going to know how to deal with this. And that's okay. This isn't my job right now. My job is to just get through this for me. That was life altering. I mean, truly, truly life altering. And I'm so grateful for it because I've applied that now to, to my life today. Um, and I think it's how I can know which clients to work with and which clients not to work with. It's how I know when to respond to the text message and when not. It's, it's so fascinating in our world today. It's like, well, if you've got this, this little machine in your hand, you should always be on. And that taught me, no, I, it's okay. People can send messages and I cannot respond for days, weeks, months. And that's okay. And it was an amazing gift I gave to myself. Other people did need guidance through it, but while I was in the heart of it, I just said, you know what? This isn't my role. I'm not, I, I have to take that step back. And much later was, was in a much healthier position to start to have that dialogue. And was there anyone who was supporting you through that grieving process in the way that you now support other people? Yeah, I was so, so, so blessed. So. I was actually surrounded. I was in LA when I got the news. So I was really surrounded by my community. And so I had like different people who really guided me in different ways. I had one rabbi who was, you know, basically on call, just answering all of my questions about the soul and the journey of the soul and, and what and how we're connected, the two of us. And that was profound to have that. And then a dear friend of mine, was quite literally by my side um, within minutes of it happening. And he really coached me. I mean, really coached me, taught me how to cry, taught me how to rewire my brain, which I'm always passionate about in terms of healing from illness. Um, but he taught me how to do that in terms of grief and, and just showed me step by step what I had to do in order to do the work. Because our society says time heals and that's just not true. So I, I'm so lucky that I had him and I had each person kind of had their own role. And that was also a huge lesson for me that, you know, you have to know what people's strengths are. You cannot expect, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to like think of an example now, but the person who's like great at logistics doesn't also need to be the person to console you and hold you and hold you. Like that's mm. just, it's just not the same. We each have different strengths. And so I, I was so blessed to have that like package. Um, and from that, I, I went back and said like, okay, what moved the needle? What got me through that grief process? What allowed me to, you know, they say that, that grieving isn't about learning how to be again. It's a, it's a process of becoming, you're never going to be that same person again. It's a process of becoming. And so I looked at what allowed me to do that as deep as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, and so now that's what I do with others. So yeah, I was so blessed, so lucky. And if you could distill your learning into a few takeaway points for people who are grieving at whatever stage of grief they're at, who don't have access to your coaching, what is important for us to know? Mm. Okay. This is, I, I like this. You've really like turned the tables on me here. Um, well, I think as you know, I, I can't on the one hand say we're all here for a thousand months and then not take this opportunity of, figuring out how to deal with the loss of others from a grief counselor. So I so appreciate it. So first is that the soul lives on. And when we understand that it changes everything because this person isn't gone and they, they continue to live, which means they can hear you and see you and your healing process also serves them, right? Imagine that they were here next to you and seeing you broken. And it doesn't mean you're supposed to suddenly like put on a happy face, but they're seeing you broken. And so many people have this sense when they're grieving of, if I start to get better, like we, we feel like it's a betrayal. Like I can't betray that person by, by loving my life, by enjoying my life. And they wouldn't want that if they were sitting next to us 
they would never want that. So I think the first thing is the soul lives on. You have to know that. The second is time does not heal. Do not wait for that. We've all seen, we all know people like that who are still grieving years later because they've, they've, they've absorbed what society tells us. Time heals. Time doesn't heal. If I get a cold and I decide to just wait it out, but I still go to work every day, I'm still going to have that cold weeks later because I didn't give my body time to rest and I didn't take extra fluids. If I want to get better from that cold, I'm going to stay home from work. I'm going to get plenty of sleep. I'm going to drink lots of water. I'm going to take extra vitamin C and vitamin D, right? There is actually a method to grieving and you have to show up for the process. So I, I totally don't believe time heals. And actually studies show that with time, grief actually gets larger, that it actually expands and it starts to creep into so much more of our lives. Um, and so you have to do your work right away. You have to do the work right away. And to also remember, death is the most natural thing in the world. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's the one thing that will happen to each of us. It still means that we miss the person who was with us and we miss what they brought to our lives. But we hurt ourselves so much more when we experience the pain in a sense of, I can't believe this happened, or this is such a tragedy. Well, but actually it's, it's the most normal thing on the planet. So we actually, I think, hurt ourselves a lot more when we go to that place. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, really interesting. And, you know, uh, a question that I always find is so revealing is to ask someone if they had to choose another word for love, what would that word be? And I've been so surprised by the range of answers um, the clients and friends give when I pose that to them. Because I guess for me, love is acceptance. Mm. Some people, love is the opposite. It, love is control. I had a Saudi client who said, love for me is control. Wow. Being controlled and controlling the life of someone else. And, and it was just because that's how it had been taught to her and how she'd experienced it growing up. Um, I've had, you know, love is honor. I've had... Love is achieving someone else's goals. You know, it's so wow. we say a word like love and we have hear all these meanings. But I guess what I'm really curious to know from you is what would another word for grief be? Oh, wow. I did not see that coming. I was about to say like, oh, he's going to ask me about love. The first thing that comes up is shedding. Shedding. It's, it's like shedding a skin. Well, I didn't want to preempt your answer, but a friend of mine whose son was murdered, was sharing with me that for her, the transformation of her experience of grief occurred when she understood that her feelings were love, that her feelings that she was experiencing were her love of her son, who was mm. not there. And once she understood that it started with sadness and loss, but was all about love, yeah. it actually, her grief, was her continued love. 100%. And so she didn't ever want to give that up. And, and I found that a beautiful and interesting thought to contemplate. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Um, the one thing I will say, just from my experience as a grief coach, there's so much complex grief where there wasn't really love, um, mm. but they're grieving. They're grieving maybe a lack of love. That, that, in the, that someone was always looking for in that relationship. So um, I think if I, look at, if I look at grief the way I grew today, like once I'm on the other side of, of the intense pain, yeah, it's absolutely love. You know, it's absolutely love. It's that song comes on and you giggle, but there's, there's a tinge of pain, but I'm, I'm joyous and I'm thinking of like all the best memories with him. But the reason that pain is still there is that's the grief, that's the love, right? So I agree in that sense. I just know there, I've seen so many people grieve yes. um, in such complicated ways where it has nothing to do with love. It's, it's, you know, unfinished business. Well, that's an interesting point. So maybe if to universalize it um, on the understanding that if there was deep love and connection that was fulfilled in the relationship, then grief is love but if there wasn't 
maybe grief is the continuation of that feeling you had for the person. And what I always try to guide my clients on is to deepen that, right? Continue that, that feeling you had for the person and, and continue the relationship. And it's, it's in a different way. They're not sitting next to you, but the way you related to them and the feelings that you had for them and what they meant to you, it doesn't disappear. That all still continues. So yeah, I think that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Although what's interesting in what you just said about how, you know, for some people where they didn't receive the love they wished to have or the attention or whatever it might be, grief is not necessarily a continuation of love. What, what that made me also think is that for some people, the, the judgment that they feel is valid. Like, whereas to you or I, we might think our loved one would like to see us be happy, would like to see us be joyous, would like to see us recover. There are also relationships one has to concede, I guess, where the person who's died perhaps didn't necessarily show that wish in their lifetime. That mm-hmm. selflessness, that sense of, I hope you are happier than I am. And so left behind in a relationship like that, I guess I, I would be a bit conflicted because, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to say I haven't had that experience, but it, it just makes me think about how much more challenging it is to grieve when the relationship was conflicted or yeah, the person it, was. Mm. It's so challenging. It's so challenging, especially because if that's the case, then during the relationship, you know, while the person was alive, the survivor was always wanting more. Usually there's like something is not complete and it's not coming together and you're always hoping and searching and yearning. And then that there's this abrupt end and the person dies. And so you never got that need met and even more so afterwards. And so you, you would think maybe from the outside, maybe someone has it now is free and it's not true. They're almost more bound than the person who's grieving a deeply loving, beautiful relationship because it's just, it's so complicated. How do they like piece it, take it apart really? So yeah, grief is complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. It does, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, the other thing that struck me was that I've always thought of what you did as being very specialist, you know, being having these very, very, distinct specialty niches around grief and around surviving and thriving through illness. And what I just was made aware of in this conversation was that though someone may be grieving and someone may be suffering an illness, they have a whole life and many relationships and a career. And so you come in at a certain point and you connect with them at a certain point, but then once you're in, you're coaching the whole person. And I know it sounds obvious to you because you're sitting in your chair, but from where I was sitting, it was like a sort of sudden realization that I thought of you as a grief coach or uh, as a, as an illness coach, but actually you're a coach whose starting point is those things. It's so profound because those are the most raw entry points. And as a result, someone's entire life changes. Mm. And it is really interesting because we're not there to just, help you feel whole again after the loss, but someone's, again, their lifestyle changes, their perspective changes. So you're there really as part of their whole life and and how to navigate those things. So yeah, it's true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Coming in at that raw point, that was, that was, uh, yeah, interestingly expressed and, and I'm sure how it occurs. Um, We got onto this topic of grief and thankfully (laughs) you are here today. And so I would love to hear from you, especially for our listeners, because we want them to hear how someone rises above such challenging moments and experiences. And, you know, you facing your, being on your deathbed is not the only thing you were facing in your twenties, right? You went through some other things and you have lived so much in the months you've had since, right? To go back to this concept of a thousand months. And I'm curious about it. Maybe it's just that you went, okay, I have, I now have been given a second lease on life. I don't know, but you've lived all out full out. And I'm curious, like what pushed you to do that? What pushed you to actually take it from the intellect into your being? Well, you make it sound like I accomplished something amazing and it really wasn't. You have Remy. 
Well, it didn't. It didn't feel like that to to me. Of course, it's amazing to have survived, and I am so grateful for that. But that in itself created a momentum. If you imagine, I don't know, imagine a boy that's floating on the water, representing a life, and then you pull that boy to the bottom of the ocean,、mm. and then I was told I was going to live. The boy is then released, and it. Has its own momentum. It moves up towards the surface of the water,、mm. and you don't say, "How did it do that?" My goodness, that's amazing. It's simply that having confronted one's death,、um, life is so much easier. And and that is really the point that we started on. That I feel like all of us should have the opportunity to really confront our mortality, acknowledge that we're only going to be here for a thousand months, deal with the end at the beginning, so that we can live. Because I feel so many. Human beings are so terrified of the unspoken thing that there's that no one discusses the the death that we all face that their fear of it stops them taking risks stops them traveling、yeah. stops them having joy stops them really connecting because they're so afraid of losing their life losing other people facing the end and you know just to hear you normalize it by saying. You know, death is the most normal thing. It's not a tragedy. It's not a catastrophe. It's actually an inevitability, and、mm-hmm. the only thing that we can be responsible for is is how we live. Yeah.、Um, I, I have dogs. I love dogs. And、um, Sam, my Irish terrier, was not my first and not my last. And、uh, a few months ago, our dog Tom, who is a King Charles Spaniel, died. And of、mm-hmm. course, I was really、um, Grieving, but I was also really worried about our other dog, Molly, who had always slept with him and was his best friend and companion. But I was seeing it from a human perspective, because Molly, the vet, the vet explained to us if you let Tom go to sleep in your garden and then Molly comes out and sees that he's dead, she won't grieve him. If he goes away and doesn't come back, she will pine, she will grieve because she won't know what happened. And she will miss him. It will, she'll be devastated. But if she sees him dead, she will be at peace. And I found this quite hard to absorb. And yet, that is exactly what happened.、Uh, the vet came, gave Tom his fatal injection. Tom went to sleep in my arms. We let Molly out. She came to see Tom. She sniffed him, realized in an instant that he was dead, and then went about her business, playing, exploring, with this knowledge. Because for her. Life and death are binary. There's no story attached to the past or the future. You're either alive or you're dead, and so much more in the present, reveling every moment because they have no sense of this end. And obviously,、yeah. this isn't possible for humans. And yet, if we could learn something from that, just by acknowledging that we are going to die. So while we're alive, the on switch is on. We we have a responsibility to ourselves. To savor, to relish, to play, to enjoy, because at some point the off switch is going to be pushed, and then we're not going to be alive. And it's just you just have to be present with that. Do you ever find? I mean, it's been it's it's been years since you had this experience. Do you ever find like sometimes you need the reminder, like you lose touch or you get? Oh, up? oh yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, it sounds sort of morbid, and I don't know, perhaps to say this, but I. Yeah, I do sometimes really feel like I have lost touch with my、yeah. immortality. Not completely, but it's so easy to go back into the way that we were in before when we thought we were going to live forever,、yeah. in which we create problems that don't really exist, get annoyed and upset about small things,、uh, are frustrated and angry about nothing. You know, and. And it's such a waste of energy and time, and I'm so、yeah. conscious of that in my sentient moments. And yet, whenever I fall back on it, I think I take myself back to those really、uh, dark days, and and go there deliberately to remind myself of how light life is. You know, because、yeah. when we have light, I mean, I'll t- I, this is a this is a confession that I don't want my clients to hear or see, but. I believe in affirmations. I think you know, if you believe in our power of intention and our power of manifestation, then just to say every morning to myself, "I am strong. I am powerful. I'm creative. I'm resourceful. 
is a very important and useful exercise and it helps wipe all the viruses from our software of our brain. So I absolutely recommend uh, clients do this, but I realized the other day that in my affirmations, in my own affirmations, I don't say I'm alive. I don't say I am alive. It's like I take that for granted. So the moment you take your life for granted, you need, a, you need to reboot because taking life for granted is, is not uh, the, the route to happiness and joy and lightness. It's savoring life, appreciating it, appreciating my, oddly I say I'm free because I revel in the fact that I'm not incarcerated. Um, but I, don't, I didn't until I caught myself start saying I'm alive. And just reminding myself every day that I'm alive has had in itself a transformative effect. So I, I recommend if you do affirmations, incorporate I'm alive, I'm healthy, I'm here. And if you don't do affirmations, I definitely recommend you do them. Yeah, no, I definitely do I'm healthy. I'm gonna be adding I'm alive, that's huge. And that I'm here. And all my clients are also an affirmation. So I hope that all of our listeners are also taking affirmations with them. That's so profound. And it's so interesting to hear you say that because I mean, you have so many different businesses. You have your, you, you wear so many hats. But um, when I think of you as a coach and as the Vitality Guru and, and how you coach leaders, um, it's, it's interesting because sometimes, I guess my impression is you're reminded of it more because you're sharing the practice but i guess i can really relate to that and sometimes i actually have to remind myself of actually what it felt the, the day that i that my diagnosis was changed is a big one for me if i find that i'm starting to lose touch with like just being grateful for my health i have to go back to that day and and the shock of it um sometimes i have to take myself back to the days of being sick of not being able to see or walk and remind myself and certainly have to reconnect with the, the first few days after David died, because it's, it just brings my appreciation and my gratitude into like such focus. So yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that and your confession to your clients who might hear this. Yeah, I didn't say I'm alive, but I do now, so. Yeah, so we, we correct it. Yeah, because we're human. And that's, that's the other thing. I always try to be transparent with my clients and like, yeah, I'm human. That's what we do. Yeah. And even you didn't until now say you're alive, which you manifestly are. So <laughs> I'm right here. Yes. No, I had no, I, I, it wouldn't have even occurred to me. So I'm going to be adding that. Thank you. <laughs> well, Thank it's you. just been such a joy talking to you and getting a chance to have this kind of conversation with someone who has lived through <laughs> as much as you have uh, and, and radiates joy in the way that you do, Thank despite you. or possibly because of all your experiences. Yeah, definitely. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so glad that we finally did this. I so appreciate how, how authentic you are in all of it and how, as you said, vulnerable. I think that that's so, so transformative for people to hear that. And we need to hear it today. And um, I just, I really, I'm excited. I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear your story. And I feel like there's probably so much more we could talk about. So Maybe at some point we'll do a round two. Until next time, for sure, I would love that. Amazing. And uh, good luck and, and enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Remy. I cannot wait to, to get this aired and have you hear it. Thank you. Take care. Have a great night. Hey, thanks for listening. For links to anything related to today's show or to stay up to date on all the happenings in Lemonade Land, follow me on social media in the show notes or visit my website, kaleyz.com. That's K-A-L-E-Y-Z as in zebra.com. Have a sweet and refreshing day.